0: Welcome to Tramlines, a podcast from Agri. I'm your host, Tony Smith, putting your questions to the experts. In this episode, I'm talking to Agri's senior agronomist, Andrew Richards. Today's topic is boosting bugs in soils and asking an expert from Agri, what does this mean? What is the agronomic benefit? And of course, importantly, is there a financial benefit for the grower? So Andrew, can we start by asking you know, what are the bugs in our soils that we should be aware of?
1: Well, I'll tell you, that's, um, I think, our, what we've seen over the last few years um, is this massive change in our understanding of what is, what is in the soil. And obviously, you know, as a result of um, coronavirus, we've all become suddenly experts in um, PCR testing, understanding of, the um, genetics makeup of microbes, which is what's been used by soil biologists or microbiologists um, with increasing levels of sophistication over the last 10 years to really start to understand what's in the soil. Now, I think before we sort of perhaps delve a little bit into that, it's worth sort of getting our heads around, what is the scale of what we're looking at in the soil? And I think, you know we can look at the start off with the, the food web where we've got these um, different trophic levels we call them so we're starting off with the plants with the plant roots and the um, exudates and the sort of decaying plant material then we've got our um, decomposers those sort of the uh, bacteria and the sort of fungi involved with that then we have the shredders the little creepy crawlers then we have the predators those that feed on those on the microbes and then we've got this sort of Ecosystem engineers, the worms. Now, in terms of trying to get this sort of scale of things, so if we think down at that sort of the lowest level um, at our uh, decomposers, so there's something like, um, uh, you know, 100,000 maybe bacteria and different fungal species within um, a spade full of soil. And this could represent something like a sort of billion, you know, several billions of individual organisms. Then at the sort of the next stage up, there's sort of the the little sort of animals that feed on them, the nematodes and um, protozoa, and we're talking you know hundreds of species and 10 to 100,000 individuals within a sample, a soil sample. Then we're looking at the, um, uh, the the microarthropods, the insects, the arachnids, the mollusks, and so we're looking at hundreds of species and so maybe 5,000. And then you've obviously got the uh, some, some mammals that were sort of across the top of that soil living on some of those worms and beetles. So it's a really sort of massive environment. And I think this sort of gets some idea of the scale. You know, you could be within a, gra- a gram of soil, modern scientist has estimated there's 10 billion living bacteria within that.
0: Right. So you know, how do you assess, how do you measure actually? how healthy your soil is from this perspective in terms of bugs?
1: Well that's, well, that's what I think is not a sort of practicality part of the moment, which is why people have gone to looking at indicators. So you remember I talked about the sort of trophic level. So we start off yeah. at the smallest level with the sort of bacteria and fungi, where we're dealing with tens of thousands of species. So at that point at the moment, we're, um, people, some people will say, well, an indication of total microbial biomass is a good idea. But the problem is you don't know what's good and what's bad. So is that reflector of healthy? Then we could move up a notch, and this is one that's sort of favoured by a number of academics: is looking at um, different types of nematode. Now, from an agricultural point of view, we all think of nematodes as being, you know, pests, don't we? Like PCM. Mm. Whereas the free-living nematodes are a really critical part of this whole soil ecosystem and its functionality. And within the soil, you have nematodes that live on bacteria, some that live on fungi, some that are herbivores. And they have different mouth parts. And one of the ways of determining what your sort of makeup of bacteria and fungi is is within looking at those relative populations. Now, we, had, uh, we were part of an EU funded project, Acrocycle. Um, and we had a PhD student, Anna, working up at Harper. And she looked at um, some nematodes and really quite useful um, method. But at the moment, it's completely impractical to take beyond the lab because what she was doing and had to be trained up to do this was looking down a microscope at the mouth parts of nematodes and determining which, you know, which were which. So you can imagine the time consuming nature of that just to get to um, understanding one soil sample. Obviously, in time, we're looking at. uh, you know, uh, a genetic way of doing that, which will hopefully come along. At, at the next scale up, again, because it's all around this hierarchy, you can know that the um, variation of um, microarthropods and insects uh, can be then used because, uh, as an indication, because obviously they depend on what's below them in terms of nematodes, protozoa, bacteria. And there's um, uh, an international standard of looking at springtails And you look at the relative population of um, those that live below and above ground and again that's um, a question of identification but it's not perhaps quite as difficult because the springtails that live below ground don't have pigments because they don't need to protect themselves from the sun so they're clear and the ones that live above ground are pigmented and again there's some sort of although it sounds um a bit far-fetched there's some you know some quite good correlation between Um, how this um, relative numbers vary and soil health that's um, you know documented and been produced in peer produced papers and then above that in this is the one area that uh, that um, if you had 20 soil scientists in a room and all saying how do you measure soil health simply earthworms and that's a relative number of earthworms and that I, I suspect is going to be within the ELMS program we see one of the initial measurements of soil health because it's something that people can agree on and also because I think farmers you know and inherently gardeners and everybody relates to it, don't you see a nice old earthworms healthy soil and it is um, a good indication but obviously it's not giving anything like the complete story. No
0: but it does it does give us all a, 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 a means with which to watch our soil health doesn't it as you said we can all relate to that so that sounds absolutely fascinating. I can really sense the depth of science behind this. I really can. From the farmer and the agronomist perspective, how does this impact on plant health?
1: Well, I think it's something we've tended to, um, you know, largely ignore. But, I mean, there are some really sort of interesting sort of basic cases that, you know, have been around for years. And I think the, sim- the simple one, and I think this is also one we need to really get our head around, is what really controls that sort of biodiversity in the soil—the sort of fungi, bacteria—and really, most soil um, mechanisms is pH. Now, p- now that is a sort of have far bigger impact than anything else. And sometimes we can use pH to, um, you know, manipulate soil health. And it, and people have done it for years without perhaps thinking about it or understanding the sort of biology behind it. So, for example, you know, earthworms like Um, neutral to alkali soils. And around pH 7 would be optimum for an earthworm. Now, if you wanted to grow potatoes in that field, and you had your um, slightly above um, pH 7, you're gonna have an increased risk of scab. So a lot of um, potato farmers for a healthier soil, they actually having less scab is more important than earthworms. And This is where that sort of playoff. And then we've also known for many years around club root. And that um, whether it's the sort of Brussels sprout grass or sort of migrated onto the sort of calcareous soils or um, growing swedes in Scotland, that high pH suppresses, um, suppresses um, club root. So we're already that sort of very basic level of, you know, manipulation of soil biology to help us with plant health.
0: Sure. So you've mentioned the pH. And a lot of talk uh, on the street at the moment, if you like, or even in the field, is about organic matter uh, and regen agriculture. So tell me a little bit about uh, organic matter. What's how influential is that in terms of soil health?
1: Well, I think I think along with pH, organic matter is absolutely critical. And I, in a previous podcast, you've talked to Andy Neal, and I think for anybody who hasn't listened to Andy neil in terms of understanding of organic matter, how that drives. Um, so, sort of structure, store of functionality, please do listen to that and his understanding of sort of pores and structure. And that is really um, uh, is sort of that vital because organic matter provides the food, the habitat, sort of substrate to enable biology to exist within the soil. Yeah,
0: very interesting. And a great point that you made there, which is do listen to Andy Neal's podcast, which is all about understanding the science of soil organic matter. Well worth a listen to if you haven't already done so. Um, Something that I've read that you've written about is biologicals and N-fixation, nitrogen. Um, What's the influence of bugs when it comes to that?
1: Well, we know that improving nitrogen use efficiency is going to be um uh in a critical component going forward we've got the um fao guidelines coming out in 2030 or i think i'm not quite sure sort of how mandatory that is that nitrogen use efficiency has got to be increased nitrogen losses reduced by um 50% which is going to really sort of focus the mind on how we improve um, uh um, our use of nitrogen and this year we've had this really massive sort of um uh, kick in the teeth for agriculture in terms of nitrogen harbour bosch we've relied on we've seen nitrogen shoot up from 270 pounds a tonne to 695 pounds a tonne completely changing the dynamics and how do we make nitrogen work in a better way so for a, Quite a few years this sort of holy grail in the way of soil biology is can we get soil biology to fix nitrogen for us for the non-leguminous plants. we have obviously all very familiar with um, peas and beans where we don't need to apply nitrogen and the rhizobial bacteria which enable them to fix their own uh, nitrogen. So the, the question is can that then be um, looked at in other crops? and there's a lot of work around the world looking at some um, whether it's the sort of cereals um wheat rice maize the world's major cereal crops and can we um that don't normally associate with rhizobia but can we find a situation where adding biology to the soil you could um enable them to gain a level of nitrogen now We've had a history within Anchory of looking at a number of projects. Um, I know Colin Lloyd and team were involved with the European project when we um, the um, Dolgetty business joined Mastoc, And We've since worked with a number of other um, prov- provisos of bacteria. Uh, but what's perhaps becoming increasingly um, uh, known as this level of biology understands within soil, that it's not about single or limited number of adding a few nitrogen fixing bacteria to the soil is going to make the difference the whole sort of complexity of those trophic levels i talked about how they interrelate so you might have um, introduced some soil back um, fixing bacteria into the soil but are they able to survive in that soil is it the right ph can they colonize etc some of the first points Secondly, they could produce a lot of um, nitrogen, which just feeds something else within the the food web. And particularly this is seen from um, work done on releasing phosphate, again using bacteria, that you reach a point where you don't actually get phosphate available to the plant, but you actually introduce some um, phosphate, um, some of the um, bacterial feeding nematodes at the right level, and you cause a more, much more cycling of the bacterial population. And suddenly you start to get phosphate available to the plant. And it's these sort of complex interactions that are going on and it's just sort of sorry to sort of drift from one to the other but you see within nitrogen, you've also got the importance of, of, of earthworms within the process. You've got um, nematodes again as part of that, getting nitrogen from being fixed by the bacteria into the plant. And this is where actually I think that um, there's some really exciting work going on rather than thinking we're being clever here, we're adding biology to the soil. Well, we've got so much biology in the soil is how do we manage that soil in in a way that that is sustainable, but actually encourage the soil to produce, to enhance the biological activities that we'd like to.
0: Very interesting, Andrew. And moving on, how can having a good soil health help us with regards to elms?
1: Well, it's, it's going to mean there is going to be a, um, a payment uh, for managing soils in a healthier way. And there's definitely all for monitoring that health. Now, like with all things, there's massive, you know, to do with government committees and the fact we don't have not got a not single definition of soil health discussion around what might be. Um, included within that but there's definitely going to be a component to start with it looks as though it will be around looking at VES, which is visual um, evaluation of soil a technique developed um, in New Zealand by Graham Shepard and um, perhaps all taken on in the UK by um, Strzok and you can that's freely widely available but it does a bit of time consuming looking at structure in the field the biological components will be around Monitoring soil organic matter and uh, earthworm tests. Going beyond that um, will be the sort of next next phase, what might be for soil health. But I think that's where that that will be now. Whether uh, the um, it's all getting slightly sort of muddied by wanting then to link soil organic matter with carbon, and if people are wanting to understand the carbon stocks they've got within the soil, what is the international requirements in terms of depth? Um, obviously the more uh, deeper you take the sample you've got carbon running down through the soil the more carbon you can claim within the soil that you've got and maybe get a payment for it so there's a bit it's a bit sort of complex and as usual with all these things slightly mudded and I think we need to be a bit cautious or sort of jumping into um, some of the carbon schemes but definitely organic matter um, worms and vests will play a part within that and then Um, as hopefully the science becomes agreed, um, uh, perhaps a more comprehensive and sort of functional-based approach to some other measurements will be incorporated.
0: Sure. So um, what I'm hearing is that this is an area where agronomists uh, and growers need to really, really keep a watchful eye because it's going to be in their interest to do so. Um, Bringing it together, uh, what's Agri doing? Are you doing any trials or research yourselves?
1: Well, One of the key things that we're doing is launching within Agri our own soil health um, service offer because people are requesting whether it's around um, understanding their carbon stocks, whether it's around meeting SFI requirements to enable them to have a a baseline of the soil health status. But I say it's one of those things that's sort of difficult. You look at it from a scientific point of view and there's so much out there and so much unknowns. Where do you go? So it's homing down to what we can sensibly do now that is going to give farmers a really good benchmark as to where their soils are and will be relevant going forward rather than we're measuring things that will be proved, well, that's a bit irrelevant in two or three years time. And that's been one of the challenges of getting together this service. But this is going to be launched um, after Christmas. And um, you know we put a lot of work into it the last two or three years in trying to get the best approach to, me- to measuring soil that's going to have that functionality and help to the farmer in terms of helping him improve his soil management and nutrient use efficiency and um, keep his soils in the healthiest state.
0: That service sounds absolutely fantastic, Andrew. What one key message would you leave our listeners with
1: today? I think uh, the one of the things that uh, I think is more is, or less is more with so much to do with soil. And I think the one thing over the years, you know, we've got to do less, um, uh, less cultivation. We need to get our soils in a state where that natural structure is enabled and function to, to, to work. And that um, consistent structure creates the habitats. We then avoid keep oxidising off the organic matter, we've got the pores, we've got a, a place for that biology to work and enable us to get the most out of our soils.
0: Okay well thank you Andrew for sharing some of the science behind how we can bring our soils to life and it's clear that there is an agronomic benefit which of course means a financial benefit for our growers. That's it for this podcast, but do tune in again as we meet the experts throughout the season, exploring the many immediate and longer-term questions for growers and farmers in the UK. The Tramlines podcast has now received over 2,500 downloads, and we want to make sure this podcast is relevant to your farm business. And so if you have any questions that you would like us to ask the experts, email info at agri.co.uk. See you next time.